Well, that was a surprise. Um, how many golfers are here? Too bad, because I was going to go through every single shot in that round. <laughs> Instead, I think I'll probably talk about the Middle East. Uh, I actually, last time I was here, I had a, a book that was out called Doomed to Succeed, the U.S.-Israeli Relationship from Truman to Obama. Now I have a book that will be coming out. It's not out yet, uh, although it is available on pre-orders. Uh, it is a book called Be Strong and of Good Courage. It's an admonition, and it's an admonition to Israeli leaders. The essence of the book is that if Israel stays on the path it's on, meaning it continues to do exactly what it's doing, uh, at some point, not too far in the distant future, it will become a binational Arab Jewish state. And the book is basically about explaining what it will take to avoid that, recognizing there's a central premise, notwithstanding that the fact that the Trump administration is going to present a peace plan at some point, that plan is not going to produce the ultimate deal. Uh, it could, in the best case, it could create a basis for negotiations, but it's not going to produce a deal. There is no two-state outcome that is available anytime soon. The problem for Israel is that if there is no two-state outcome available anytime soon, if Israel's posture remains as it is, if it keeps building outside of the settlement blocks, and I'll explain that in a few minutes, it, it will become a state where separation is impossible, where the mix of Arabs and Jews within the state is such that it is a binational state. So it will take a big decision to change that reality. What this book is about is looking at what it takes to change that reality, but in a sense, looking at the past to provide us some guidance on, on how you could think about the future, what you could do to make sure that eventuality of a binational state doesn't take place. So I'm flagging for you at the very outset, not just what the essence of the book is about, but in a sense that there's a basic problem that is looming, a tipping point is coming, and Israeli leaders are going to have to make a decision, and it is going to be a tough decision given the political constellation in Israel. So the first question you might ask, why isn't this issue being debated in Israel? I mean, I'm here in San Francisco. I'm outlining it. You don't see this issue being debated in Israel right now. And yet, obviously, what I'm suggesting is that it needs to be debated. So it's a good question to say, okay, so why isn't it being debated in Israel? There are a couple of reasons. Uh, and when I talk about the first reason, it'll also create a context for you about what Israel faces in the region. It allows me to say something about the current conditions in the region, even as I also begin to explain why this question is not being debated in Israel. The most simple answer as to why it's not being debated is that for most Israelis, it appears to be an abstraction. But what they face in the region is not an abstraction. Look around the region. What do most Israelis see? Well, they see the war in Iraq was a war fought without any limitations whatsoever. A sectarian tribal conflict where the most severe kinds of outrages were somehow commonplace. A war in Syria, a half a million people dead, where hospitals, schools, bakeries were a legitimate target, meaning an acceptable target. In the Sinai today, you have ISIS. You have, you have affiliates of ISIS in the Sinai desert, and the Israelis are cooperating, at times more than cooperating, with the Egyptians dealing with it. When I say you've had a terrible war in Syria, that doesn't even capture necessarily what Israel faces today in Syria. Israel faces today in Syria uh, an Iranian presence that is growing, an Iranian presence with Shia militia proxies. The Iranians are introducing, trying to introduce more of a precision missile capability. Understand, in Lebanon, there are 130,000 rockets that Hezbollah has. Hezbollah is operating within Syria. And there is now a report that the Israelis recently released that in a town not far from Damascus, the Iranians are trying to build a factory that will produce 
precision-guided systems that could be put onto rockets. For the Israelis, that is something they truly can't live with. I mean, if you have tens of thousands of rockets coming out of Lebanon and potentially from Syria as well, uh, Israel is a small country. Tens of thousands of rockets will overwhelm any defensive system. It will saturate it. Israel has a small number of strategic targets, not just military, obviously economic as well. And as Israel confronts this, it also has to deal with the reality of Russia. Back in September, the Israelis carried out an operation. Their planes were back in Israel. Uh, and the Syrians launched a barrage of anti-aircraft rockets after the Israelis were already back in Israel. And they knocked down a Russian plane, killing 15 Russian servicemen. And who did the Russians blame? Anybody know? They blamed Israel. You know, they weren't about to blame Assad because there it is, they're there to save Assad. They blamed Israel. They became much tougher towards the Israelis since that time. The Israelis, for a period of time, actually dramatically cut back their operations in Syria because of that. Uh, and they only resumed them when President Trump tweeted that he was getting out of, of Syria. And then the Israelis had to operate because they had to establish some rules. One of the things that happened almost immediately is that the head of the Quds Force, the Revolutionary Guard, became more active in Syria again in the aftermath of President Trump's tweet and then declaration of us, us getting out. The significant point here is this is what most Israelis look at. And what they're seeing is when it comes to Syria and the Iranian presence and the Shia militia presence and the Russians, they're on their own. There used to be an understanding I mean, look, I served in five different administrations, Republican and Democrat. People often ask me, how come I could manage both? I said, look, I've spent 30 years dealing with Arabs and Israelis. How hard could it be? <laughs> you have a reality in all the past administrations where we had an understanding with the Israelis. Yes, we would provide material support to the Israelis, but they handled all the threats in the region. The threats from outside the region, we handled. It was up to us, not today. Today, the Israelis have to handle the Russians. Uh, and if you're going to head off what could be an escalating conflict that may start in Syria and Lebanon, but you don't know where it ends, I mean, think about the reality that if a war starts where Israel's being hit by 2,000 rockets a day, which is a conservative estimate given the numbers that the Hezbollah has, you really think that Israel is going to allow the Iranians to sit in Iran, not be touched by uh, any rockets from Israel, any missiles from Israel, and allow the Iranians to send tens of thousands of rockets, 2,000 rockets a day into Israel, and Iran is immune? Not a chance. So that just tells you there's a great escalatory potential, and we're not a central player in this. So the burden is on Israel, and that's what most Israelis see. So when the threats are that tangible, uh, and what I'm talking about in terms of becoming a binational state seems more abstract, not a huge surprise that you focus more on the immediacy of these kinds of threats and what the neighborhood looks like. Plus, you have another reality. No one in Israel today looks at the Palestinians and thinks that there is any deal that could be negotiated with them. And by the way, they're not wrong. The Palestinians are split. Hamas controls Gaza. And just in November, Israel was hit with 500 rockets and mortars in a 36-hour period. Uh, today, there was a flare-up in Gaza. Today, again. You know, the potential for a blow-up in Gaza, the potential for southern and northern fronts is quite high. That's real from an Israeli standpoint. By the way, for those who tend to criticize the Israelis and somehow blame them for the absence of peace, they don't tend to look at what it is Israel is looking at or most Israelis are looking at. The Palestinians, because they're split, because Hamas rejects their existence. Abu Mazen, who has pretty much made it clear that he wants his legacy to be that he wasn't the betrayer, not that he produced a state. There isn't a two-state outcome available anytime soon. So you look at the reality I'm painting. It helps to explain at one level why this issue isn't being debated. But it also is a reminder of another. If a two-state outcome isn't available anytime soon, and Israel is going to continue to keep building outside the settlement blocks. Then you get to the point where you simply can't separate from the Palestinians. 
That then changes the character of Israel. That then means that Israel is a binational state. And under those circumstances, either it's a state with one legal system for everyone, or it's a state with two legal systems, which is not sustainable, which changes the character of Israel. Now, what does it mean to, uh, in a sense, to be able to separate? Well, what it means is where we are today in terms of the number of Israelis who live in what would be a Palestinian state, you really have to cap that, or you have to cap it pretty soon. Just to give you a sense, there are settlement blocks in Israel. The concept of settlement blocks is something we came up with in the spring of 2000 before we went to Camp David. The idea was how were we going to be able to draw a border recognizing that there were large numbers of settlers. And we realized that even though there are large numbers of settlers, there are 130 settlements, five out of 130 represent 45% of all the settlers. And where are those? They're close to the Green Line. So if you build in that area that's close to Israel, which will remain a part of Israel, and then you swap, you come up with some sort of territorial compensation for the Palestinians, that's how you can resolve this. But it means you can't keep building outside the blocks. And today, there's more than 100,000 Israelis who live outside the blocks. If the building continues, that gets you to the point where you can't separate. In a minute, I'm gonna go through and say what Israel needs to do to be able to manage this in a way that doesn't threaten it, that doesn't put it at risk. But I only gave you part of the reason that Israelis are not debating the issue. It's a reason that I think is understandable, but it's not the whole story. The other part of the story is that the right wing in Israel denies there's a problem. They either say, we, you know, we can give the Palestinians autonomy on 40% of the West Bank, and that'll work everything out. The problem with autonomy on 40% of the West Bank is you are disconnecting that Palestinian area from the economic hinterland that could make them viable. If they, the World Bank has done a study where it says if, if the Palestinians and the Palestinian Authority simply had access to that 60%, what's known as Area C, access, not control, their GDP would immediately be improved by 35%. This is an area where there are all sorts of minerals, where there's agricultural land, where there's the potential for tourism, where you could build industrial zones. But as long as they don't even have access, uh, it greatly limits what they could have from an economic standpoint. The fact is, Palestinians are not gonna accept autonomy on 40% of the West Bank. Now, there are others in the right wing who say, you know what? That's probably true. That's probably not the right answer. But maybe the right answer is they can just become part of Jordan. Right? Right? Only one problem. The Jordanians reject that. So there are two answers that the right poses, which is autonomy or part of Jordan. Neither one uh, is anything but wishful thinking. Now, they have a second argument that they make. And that is that the demographic argument's not real. And I could spend a lot of time going through the arguments that they make versus the argument that the professional demographers make. Maybe we'll save that for the Q&A uh, because I can get into a level of detail that you'll find interesting. But the fundamental point is, if you actually look at the difference between the two arguments in terms of the real numbers today, you'll find that the difference is that those who say it's it's not a problem, we don't have to worry about the demographics. Even they acknowledge, if you count the Jews and the Arabs in Israel and the West Bank, they don't count Gaza. The reason you, you may sometimes see people say, but there's parity today, is because they count Gaza. I don't count Gaza, because Israel got out. How can you count Gaza if the Israelis left? But if you count Israel, Jews and Arabs in Israel and the West Bank today, According to the right that says the demographics are not a problem, it's a 65-35 split, a ratio of 65 to 35. The professional demographers, by the way, the right employs people who may be mathematicians, but they're not demographers. The professional demographers, they say today it's 61-39. Obviously, they look at differences in birth rates and say, you know, over a period of time, there's gonna be parity. 
Think about 6535-6139. Israel, when it was born as a, as a state in 1948, the split has been basically 80-20. If you keep only the sediment blocks, which might involve the 5% of the West Bank that is closest to the Green Line, you know what the percentages would be? Jews to Arabs, Israel keeps you know, only 5% of the West Bank. But in that 5%, you have close to 80% of the settlers who live there. What do you think the percent would be between Jews and Arabs, if that's what you keep? The exact same as it was in 1948, 80-20. When it's 80-20, you have a majority and a minority. Even when it's 65-35, that's no longer a majority and a minority. It affects the culture, it affects the identity. It is, at that point already, approaching increasingly what might be described as a binational state. And this is not a static situation. So the reality of the right is, whether their argument is either autonomy or connected to Jordan or the demographics, what they're outlining is not something that is sustainable if you don't want to be a binational state. Okay, so what's the answer? What can Israel do since there isn't an agreement anytime soon? I wish the deal of the century was available. Believe me, I've spent 30 years working on this. I wish it was available, but it's not. Not right now. And the aim ought to be, okay, so how does Israel preserve what it is on the one hand and maybe take advantage of that to create conditions or making a deal possible over time when it might become possible. There are several things that Israel could do today. Not one of them puts Israel's security in any different position than it is today. The first thing, stop building outside the blocks. You want to build in the, in the sediment blocks in roughly 5% of the territory? To be fair right now, you can say anything to the west of the security barrier. You want to build there, build there, because that, under any circumstance, will remain part of Israel. And as I said, it actually deepens what you want, which is an 80-20 split. But stop building outside, because when you keep building outside, what you're going to do is you're going to make it impossible to separate the population. When you lose the ability to separate, then you have produced one state. And you know, by the way, the number of Palestinians today under the age of 30, if you poll them and ask them what do they most want to see, the answer, the highest number of Palestinians below the age of 30 when they're asked that question, they say, one state, just give us one person, one vote. That's what they say. So preserve the ability to separate by number one, stop building outside the settlement blocks. Number two, make a declaration that the area to the east of the security barrier, which as I said is 8% of the West Bank, so it leaves 92% uh, of, the, of the West Bank uh, not part of Israel, say there'll be no Israeli sovereignty to the east of the barrier. Again, it makes it clear, A, you're no longer building there, B, you're saying there will not be Israeli sovereignty there. That doesn't mean you have to give up the idea that the Jordan River might still be Israel's security perimeter. So you're not sacrificing, certainly not, there isn't a need to do it, to somehow expose yourself from a security standpoint, even now. Three, provide financial incentives to those Israelis who live outside the settlement blocks to move, to move back either into the blocks or into Israel. Four, don't build in the Arab neighborhoods of East Jerusalem. You have eight Jewish neighborhoods in East Jerusalem. Why build in the Arab neighborhoods of East Jerusalem unless you want to make it impossible to separate? So don't do that. And fifth, open up Area C, the 60% I was talking about, for the Palestinians to develop and advance their economy. Again, if at some point you want the option, not just of separation, but of two states, they need to become much more effective from an economic standpoint. Something else that needs to be done they need to actually begin to build the institutions of statehood. 
if you had a Palestinian state tomorrow, something else that the critics of Israel never seem to draw attention to, if you had a Palestinian state tomorrow, it would be a failed state. And if you have a failed state in the West Bank, you'll have worse than Hamas there, which is something else that has a chilling effect, not surprisingly, on most Israelis. But if you take the five steps that I just described, you preserve the option of separation on the one hand, you don't expose Israel to any kind of security threat on the other. Sounds simple, right? You know, it's a snap. Why not just go ahead and do it? I'm offering a brilliant solution. So what makes this so hard? What makes it hard is that basically there's a political constellation of forces in Israel, uh, not surprisingly in the aftermath of the Second Intifada, given the way the region looks, the perception that the left in Israel is basically naive and doesn't understand the region, this becomes politically very difficult to do. Not impossible, but politically difficult. It requires a courageous decision by an Israeli leader. It requires an Israeli leader to make a big decision. Uh, what this book does in the end is culminate in what I was just describing, but the chapters before it are looking at past big decisions by Israeli prime ministers. It paints a portrait of each of these prime ministers, who they were, how they evolved, uh, and then outlines the decisions they made that in many cases went against the grain of who they were. Not in all, but in three of the four cases. So what I want to do in my remaining time, I want to do the following. I want to give you a snapshot of each of these leaders and the decisions that they made. And then I'm going to tell you there's one other interesting point here. Before I get into this, even though Ariel Sharon is one of the figures, I want to let you know uh, one of the last meals I had with him, he was explaining why he took the decision he did in Gaza. Uh, and actually, I'll tell you, the, the, it was a conversation we were having. First, I should say, he was a major league eater. He brought in 10 shawarma sandwiches. Now, each of these was like this big. It was like a double Big Mac without the cheese. I'm a pretty good eater. I had two of them. He ate the other eight. <laughs> he was a major league eater. We were having this conversation, and I said, look, why do you want to throw the keys over the fence in Gaza and hope for the best? Don't you really want to show that, that Palestinians should have responsibility as well? Why not just declare the principle that you're going to get out, but that you can't get out until the Palestinians assume a set of responsibilities. You're conditioning it only on them having a response, on, have responsibility as it relates to security, that this isn't only, the onus isn't only on Israel. And his answer, I have to tell you, was quite compelling. He said, I'm not sure they will ever assume those responsibilities. I cannot allow our future to depend upon them because if they're irresponsible, and by the way, that's what I expect them to be, then they determine our destiny. And I'm not sure that they are capable of ever accepting anything but a binational state. Then he said something else, which was also compelling. He said to me, I'm from the founder's generation. We fought for the creation of the state. We lived through the periods when it was really fragile. My generation, and he said, people like Rabin, people like Paris, None of us feared to make big decisions because we understood that's what the state required. I'm afraid all of my successors are only politicians, and they're not up to this. He says, that's why I have to do this. Unfortunately, he was felled by a stroke that prevented him from, from carrying it through. All right, so let me switch now to the snapshot uh, and who these guys were. And who are the four? It's Ben-Gurion, it's Begin, it's Rabin, and it's Sharon. And after I do that, I'll talk about what else we could do to help them. Because in three of the four cases, US assurances were pivotal to making it easier politically, even for these guys who were courageous enough to, to act on their own. All right, so Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion was an autodidact, completely self-educated. 
He taught himself Greek so he could read the classics in the original language. He was a visionary. In 1932, he gives a speech. This is a year before Hitler comes to power. But he sees what's happening in Germany in 1932, and he paints a picture of what's going to happen. He's sounding the alarm in 1932. In 1939, he comes to the conclusion, after three years of what was known as the Arab Revolt, after, by the way, he was meeting with one of the people closest to Hajimin al-Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem. He was a, Ben-Gurion was someone who was convinced he could reach an understanding with the Arabs of Palestine. When he became convinced that wasn't possible, he was focused on one thing. He understood that Israel would emerge as a state only in the context of war and not only with the Arabs of Palestine, but with all the neighbors as well. So in a single-minded way from 1939 on, his focus was exclusively how to prepare Israel for what he saw coming. To give you a sense of what a visionary he was, in 1960, he was having lunch with Charles de Gaulle in Paris. And de Gaulle asked him a question. He says, what do you most want? What do you most need? And he says, more Jews. And de Gaulle says, well, they're not coming from France. And Ben-Gurion says, no, I understand that. He said, in 30 years, the Soviet Union will collapse, and they'll come from there. And when did the Soviet Union collapse? He was off by one year, 1991. He makes the decision to declare the state at a time when basically no one wants it. He sends Moshe Charette to see George Marshall, George C. Marshall, the Secretary of State, a few days before the end of the mandate. Uh, and Marshall tells him, don't declare a state. Don't be misled by tactical military successes. Don't declare a state. And Moshe Charette says to him, all right, if we delay it, will you commit to it later on? He says, no. Uh, he says, but you know, you're not in a position, you're too weak, you can't do it. Moshe Charette comes back and he sees Ben-Gurion. And he briefs him. And he tells him what Marshall says. And after he finishes the briefing, he says to him, and I'm inclined to agree with him. Ben-Gurion gets up, stands in front of the door. He says, you can go ahead and make your presentation on what Marshall said, but you're not leaving this room until you promise me you won't yourself say you're inclined to agree with him. Interesting enough, Charette not only made the promise, but he voted with Ben-Gurion. The vote to declare the state succeeded by one. The Central Council had 13 people on it. Two were in America and couldn't get back for the vote. One was in Jerusalem, couldn't get down from Jerusalem because of the siege. The vote was six to four. If Charette changes his vote, he loses. Why was the vote so close? Because the head of the ID, new head of the IDF at that time, Yigal Yadin, uh, and Israel Galili, who was his deputy, they both said, we're not ready for a war with the Arabs. We need more time. And Ben-Gurion's answer was, the time will never be right. If we don't do it now, when we have a built-in justification and pretext because the British leave at midnight on May 14th, midnight meaning 12.01 on May 15th, we have a justification when they leave. Once they're gone, there'll be no justification. If we don't do it now, there will always be arguments as to why we can't do it. He wins six to four. This was Ben-Gurion single-minded, and yet someone who made a genuine effort with the Arabs of Palestine to try to reach an understanding, going so far as to deal not only with someone, Musa Alami, who was very close to the Mufti of Jerusalem, but also George Antonius, who was a Christian Palestinian who wrote a book called uh, The Arab Awakening. And these exchanges are fascinating because they show who Ben-Gurion was but he was also a realist and a visionary. All right, what about Begin? Begin grows up in Poland. The story he likes to tell is that his father is walking in the street with their rabbi, and two Polish policemen come up, uh, and they decide to harass them and to cut the rabbi's beard. And his father fights the two Polish policemen, and they just knock the hell out of him and then they would throw him in jail. And he tells the story because he says, 
one of his proudest moments is knowing that his father stood up for the Jews. This was a symbol of his father standing up for the Jews. This is a story, by the way, that he tells Jimmy Carter in their first meeting. This is a guy who grows up, uh, becomes a Zionist, joins Betar, which is the revisionist movement. He reveres Jabotinsky. And yet in 1938, when Jabotinsky, they have a convention, he challenges Jabotinsky because Jabotinsky basically says you can't fight the British. This is the year before the white paper, but the British at this point in 38 are already, already signaling where they're gonna go, what they're gonna do. Uh, and he argues against, <coughs> he argues against Jabotinsky and he wins in this convention. Jabotinsky actually describes him as a, as a squeaking door, but he wins because he's persuasive. Jabotinsky dies the next year. He takes over the Betar movement. He loses his family in the Holocaust. Uh, he ends up being put in a Russian prison. He's tortured in that prison. <coughs> he ends up being released, makes his way to Palestine. He becomes part of the opposition. And yet, even though he's part of the opposition, he believes in his heart and soul that Jews can't fight Jews, that can't be fratricide. Now, the Irgun, which he heads, is responsible for blowing up the King David. After they blow up the King David, uh, 93 people are killed, and one of the things that the British insist on is that the Haganah, as part of the military arm uh, of the yeshiva, the Jewish community in Palestine, they insist that they turn over all those who were connected to this. And they do. And within the Irgun, they want to fight the Haganah. He says no. He holds up a piece of paper. Literally, he holds up a piece of paper and he says, the difference between purity and contamination is the thickness of that paper. We will not fight them because we will lose who we are. <clears throat> when, after the Altalena, He's bringing arms in, and Ben-Gurion says, we can't have militias after we had, at a time when Israel has already become a state. We have one army. Uh, and uh, they end up sinking the ship. Uh, all those, I mean, there's like 16 or 17 people who are killed. Begin was on the ship. He insists they will not fire back. Uh, after this takes place, one of the people around him says to him, he's going to try to assassinate Ben-Gurion. And he tells him, you have to kill me first if you're going to do that. He is governed by a deep sense of principle on everything. <clears throat> After the 1967 war, <clears throat> and these, these are basically protocols that have only recently been declassified. There is five days, June 14th to June 19th, there is a debate on what the future of the West Bank should be. A much more detailed debate than has ever taken ever taken part or place in any Israeli government. Begin had joined that government under the rubric of a national unity government uh, before the war begins. <clears throat> I get all choked up talking about this. In that debate, Begin says, we can't give up any of the territory, but we have to give everybody in the territory equal rights. If, the, if we're absorbing all the Arabs there, they have to have citizens. They have to become citizens of Israel. He is, <clears throat> the argument is, but then we lose who we are. We're no longer, we can no longer be a Jewish democracy. And he says, well, we'll make it a seven-year period before they, they achieve full citizenship, uh, and we'll try to encourage as much Aliyah as we can. He was a liberal when it came to human rights issues, when it came to the rule of law, uh, and, he, and he insisted this is what, we, we have to have the territory because it's part of who we are. We don't have a right to that part of the territory. We don't have a right to any of it. Again, he, he is someone who holds a set of principles very dearly, uh, and this was his answer to that. Uh, when he makes a decision 
at Camp David to withdraw 100% from the Sinai, remove the settlements there. He actually says whatever the Knesset will vote, which is his way of saying he didn't, he didn't himself say he was going to remove the settlements, but he's allowing it to take place. And he also offers an autonomy plan that all his closest comrades believe is a slippery slope to a state. He is called a betrayer by all the people that he was close to, the people who served with him in the good. Yitzhak Shamir, who was one of his deputies, you know, he abstains on the vote. Moshe Aaron, the same thing. Gary Cohen, who is one of the people closest to him, says he's a traitor. You know, he is promoted the Gushi Mundim. They say he's a traitor. For him, it like, it's a wound. It's a personal wound to be called that. But he makes the decision anyway because he said, Egypt has fought four wars with us. The price of those wars is simply too high. If I don't take advantage of this moment, the consequence is going to be maybe we lose Sadat or maybe Sadat joins, goes back and joins an Arab coalition against us. The cost of the United States will be high. The cost of not taking advantage of this opportunity is simply too great. If it means taking on all those who are close to him, so be it. That was Begin. Rabin. Rabin is born into a household of people who are real laborites. He is born into a household. His mother's nickname is Red Rosa. Uh, she, as he said, she's not really a Zionist to begin with, but she becomes one. She is a believer in, in workers' rights, egalitarianism. Uh, she, when she was still in what was Russia, she, after the revolution, she's the manager of a munitions plant, and she feels that it's not fair enough to the workers. She ends up getting the, into trouble with the, uh, with the government, uh, and she decides to leave. In his household, he grows up from a very young age. Uh, he has to be responsible. His mother and his father have jobs during the daytime, but they define their real jobs as building the state. So almost every night, they have people over to talk about what needs to be done. His mother sits on the municipal council. His father sits on, sits on workers' committees uh, outside of, of what he does. He works in, as, as an electrician. Uh, and you know this he grows up in an environment where he has to assume responsibility early on. They send him to a workers' school where part of their day is all about uh, basically growing their own food. Part of their day is classroom work. You know, the exams they take are all based on the honor system. Rabin is a guy who literally can't lie. I mean, I often used to say about him, if journalists knew how to ask just the right question on things like his commitment, his, his uh, discreet commitment to withdraw from the Golan Heights, he would have told them. As long as they didn't ask it just right, he could tell the technical truth. His formative years are basically spent first, before he's in the IDF, he's in the Palmach. As a young guy, uh, he's, seen as, he's seen as brilliant when it comes to planning operations. He is, in, he is put in charge of figuring out a way to get the convoys from Tel Aviv up to Jerusalem at a time when Jerusalem is under siege. And if anybody who's been on the road up to Jerusalem, well, that you didn't have the highways you had now, you had basically one road that is surrounded, or at least you have, you basically have what are high ground uh, where the Arab villages were that could shoot down on every convoy and pretty much destroy the convoys. His job is to, to organize the convoys and figure out how to get them to Jerusalem. And he writes about it, he talks about it, you know, he gives speeches about it later on, where he says, for others, when they look at the remnants, when you've driven, when you go up the road and you see what are the remnants of the, of the trucks that were part of the convoys that were destroyed, he says, for him, every one, he can still hear the screams of, his, of those he put in those trucks. Uh, he bears a deep responsibility, feels a deep responsibility. He, he heads the Harel Brigade to defend Jerusalem uh, in the 1948 war. He loses half 
of all those in the brigade. He stays in the military, even though he wants to become an agronomist. In fact, one of the things he does in his apartment in Tel Aviv, which he showed me at one point, on the rooftop, he built a little sprinkling system to be able to water what was a roof garden. That's what he wanted to do with his life. Instead, he decides, because of the high cost of the War of Independence, he makes the decision that he will, he will stay in the military because he feels, notwithstanding what Ben-Gurion single-mindedness, Ben-Gurion focused on having those in the yeshiv go into the British Army during World War II because he thought in a conventional war you had to have large formations. Rabin feels, who was a member of the Palmach, which was basically the commandos, he feels too little was given to the, to the Palmach. So they're, they're not prepared. He feels, he says this, I quote this, he feels so few were given such a huge responsibility, he felt a debt, a moral debt, to those who had died to build the IDF into a force that would never be unprepared for war. He felt that basically in the War of Independence, the losses were so high because they weren't prepared for the war. Now for him, he also looked at the Palestinians. He, he understood there was a separate nationality there, but it takes until the first intifada for him to believe that you have to deal with the Palestinians separately. Up until that time, he feels, okay, handle the Palestinians through the Jordan option. You can't have a Palestinian state. You can't have a kind of independent Palestinian entity. And part of that is he feels the Palestinians never stand up for themselves. He says at one point, when he's asked the question, why don't you deal with the Palestinians? And he says, who am I supposed to talk to? If I talk to one Palestinian, it's when he's defense minister and he has responsibility for the West Bank and Gaza. He says, if I talk to one Palestinian, he says, go talk to Yasser Arafat. If I talk to a different Palestinian, he says, go talk to the president of Egypt. If I talk to a different Palestinian, he says, go talk to the president of Jordan. If I talk to a different one, he says, go talk to the president of Syria. Why should I talk to them when basically they don't seem to be able to represent anyone? But the first intifada changes him because the Palestinians, this, is the, this intifada was known as the children of the stone. For the first time, they seem to be prepared to act on their own. He says at the beginning of this, he says, he's quoted as saying, we'll break their bones, nobody ever died from a beating. What he did say is nobody ever died from a beating, not entirely true, but he didn't say we'll break their bones. But he said, if we're tough enough, this will collapse very quickly. Uh, I heard that directly from myself. I was on the National Security Council staff at the time. Uh, this is what he said. He said, this will go away very quickly, when it didn't. The thing about Rabin was, Rabin was the most intellectually honest person. Not just that he couldn't lie, he was the most intellectually honest leader that I've ever dealt with. If you argued with him about something and he thought it through, no chance of persuading him. If he, if he proved to be wrong, he would tell you he was wrong. You were right. What happens here is, he says, okay, I thought one thing, it turns out to be wrong. He becomes convinced there's only a political answer, not a military answer, to dealing with the Palestinians. He changes that. He still has a very hard time with the idea of dealing with the PLO and Arafat. You see it. The, the day that he has to shake hands with him at the White House. I mean, the contrast is amazing. Arafat comes, he's willing to shake hands with everybody. And he gives a terrible speech. He's, he's dealing only with his own audience. Rabin comes and it's excruciating for him, again, because of his honesty, to shake hands with Arafat because of what he does. He gives a speech later and he says, as Yitzhak Rabin, the private citizen who lives on Rav Ashi Street. You know, I, I could not have shaken hands with him. But he said, I'm the Prime Minister of Israel and I have the responsibility. He said, we can't be ostriches. You know, these are the only Palestinians that can represent the Palestinians. This was Rabin. Rabin was someone who saw the world as it was and at this time, he understood something else. He understood there was a political tsunami taking place internationally. The Soviet Union had come to an end. The Berlin Wall had come down. He talked about how the maps that you knew from the past were disappearing. 
He said there was an opportunity now. There was an opportunity also because the U.S. was the uber power in the Middle East. It's after the Gulf War. The Arabs want to get along with the United States. Most importantly, he says, Iran is very weak after eight and a half years of war with Iraq. Iraq isn't a threat to the other Arab states. He sees a unique opportunity, and he says, he gives a speech in December of 1992, in which he says, there's time now to strike a deal, and we need to do it before Iran becomes a threat to the whole region. December of 1992, he says, Iran seeks to dominate the region. Right now, they're not strong enough. In time, they will become strong enough. We need to create insulation. We need to see if we can work out an agreement on the inner circle to protect us against that threat that's coming. He understands what the danger is. He understands the risk. He makes a decision to do this partly because of what I just said, the context. But he makes a decision for two other reasons. I mentioned before the intifada and the impact on him. What I didn't mention is what the intifada was doing to the IDF. It was turning the IDF into a police force. This was the institution that he had built, and he was watching it be transformed into a police force where elite units were responsible for excesses against Palestinians. They ended up court-martialing a number of officers from elite units, and for, for Rabin, what this meant was the institution itself of the military was being corroded by having to play this role. That's a dr key driving factor for him. The second factor is demographics. He explains to me in February of 1995, this is when I'm our negotiator, he says to me, I want to negotiate an agreement with the Palestinians, but I know one way or the other we have to have partition." Because if we don't have partition, we will no longer be a Jewish democratic state. It's only a matter of time. If I can't do it through negotiation, I'll do it through separation, and I'm going to build a separation fence. This is what, when this, the concept of this begins in 1995. Because he isn't certain that it's possible to negotiate an outcome with the Palestinians. Obviously, the opposition to him is intense. And ultimately, he pays for it with his life. Then there's Ariel Sharon. Ariel Sharon, as a five-year-old, describes he has an eye infection. He has to be taken by his mother uh, up to Jerusalem. He describes riding in a bus as a five-year-old, and he's peering out the window of the bus looking for Abu Jilda. Abu Jilda is a well-known Arab terrorist at the time. He's a five-year-old, and he's He's watching out for him. He, his family are iconoclasts. They're part of a moshav, not a kibbutz, but a moshav. It's a cooperative. You actually own your own land, but it's a cooperative. Uh, his parents are outliers. Uh, his father is an agronomist who thinks he knows much better than everybody else. The, all the decisions on how to plant and water to use and when to irrigate, they're made in a cooperative fashion. His father rejects all that. He plants what he wants to plant. He thinks they're all wrong. Uh, they're supposed to share. Uh, each is supposed to give up part of their own land because they're going to create a new moshav next to them. His mother and father say, no way. So they fence uh, their own plot. He is sent as a kid to guard their plot, not only against others, but also against Arabs. As a 13-year-old, his father gives him this big sort of knife and has him sit in the dark at night by himself you know, to guard the plot. He's fearless from an early age. This defines Sharon. His parents are deep believers that they're right and that it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And in fact, this characterizes Sharon for most of his life. Sharon becomes a great soldier, but he also is someone who is almost, almost drummed out of the military three different times. Why? Because he doesn't follow orders. And then how can I put this best? He doesn't tell the truth about it. 
You know, Ben-Gurion writes in his diaries, he could be a great man if he could only tell the truth. But Ben-Gurion saves him three separate times. He saves him in the military because he is not just a great soldier, but he's a charismatic leader that others follow. He thinks unconventionally. Ben-Gurion, when he resigned, he tells Rabin he's going to be the next chief of staff of the military. And he tells Rabin, look, I know the problems that Arcus has, but I want you to treat him differently. I want you, you know, to find a way to keep him in the military. He's a great soldier and we need him. So when Rabin becomes the, the head of the IDF, he brings in Sharon and he says to him, Everybody knows you're a great soldier. The problem is, nobody knows if you're a decent human being. I don't know you well enough to make a judgment. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a one-year trial period. You are going to go and serve under the head of the Northern Command. And if after one year I hear from him that you have performed your duties and you've operated effectively, then I'll make you a major general. And he did. He's always doing what he thinks is right. He, is, he says when Begin is first elected and he's made the Minister of Agriculture and then also put in charge of the Committee on Settlements, he goes to, he goes to the cabinet, who are all, you know, they're from the Kheru the Liberal Party, they're, they're now part of Likud, uh, and he says, I'm the only Mapainik here, meaning labor Zionist. If I say I'm gonna do it, I'm actually gonna do it. Don't complain about it later. He comes up in 1977 and he comes up basically with the whole grid for what the settlements will be everywhere. In fact, the whole structure, the outline, he creates. Basically, it's, it's what you see today is an outgrowth of what he did. He's the one who built them and he's the only one who has dismantled them. First in the Sinai and then in Gaza. Why does he act? In the end, even though he's, he's the one who built them, he comes to a conclusion very similar to Rabin. First, he's very worried about what's happening to the IDF. The most elite commando unit uh, in, the, in the IDF, uh, the reservists from it during the Second Intifada send him a letter saying they won't serve in the West Bank. They won't be part of this. Same time, there's a published statement by reserve pilots saying the same thing. He's in a meeting and one of the guys who works for him says, ah, oh, they're all leftists. He slams his fist on the table and he says, no, I've conducted with them the most sensitive, dangerous operations of the state. You know, you'll never speak about them that way. The conclusion he drew was, again, much like Rabin, the institution that he revered the institution that he understood was the key to Israel's security. Because if Israel isn't secure, if you know one thing about the Middle East, Israel doesn't exist. In the Middle East, if you're weak, you're dead. He understood that, but he also understood that you couldn't lose the military as an institution. And the second thing was also the demographics. You know, every year there's a speech the Prime Minister gives on the anniversary of Ben-Gurion's death down at Stabokar, the Ben-Gurion's kibbutz. And he did a speech shortly before he announced the disengagement. He quoted Ben-Gurion and he said about Ben-Gurion, we could have had a state, we could have fought in the first, in the war of independence, we could have had a state in which we took the territory to the Jordan River. But then we would have been a minority in that state. And it was better for us to be a majority in part of the territory, not a minority in all of it. This was Sharon who came to the conclusion that if he didn't act the way he was acting, the demographics would change the character of the state. And he also believed that they wouldn't be able to hold on to what he felt was essential, the settlement blocks. He feels the letter that he gets from George W. Bush in 2004 is one of the greatest achievements, diplomatic achievements, because it acknowledges that effectively the June 467 lines, in the letter it says the Armistice Lines from 1949, can't provide the final outcome. 
it recognizes what are called as major population centers, which are the settlement blocks. Uh, and it says that the refugee issue, the Palestinian refugee issue, has to be handled in a way that doesn't change the Jewish character of the state. He feels this is very important for him to get. He's not getting anything from the Palestinians, but he's getting something from the United States that he can use to help sell this. And he does. And that raises the point about there is a U.S. role here. In the case of Begin, in the case of Rabin, in the case of Sharon, all three of them would in fact have probably made the decisions they did anyway. But the fact that the U.S. was prepared to make a series of commitments, in Begin's case it included paying uh, for the air bases that were going to be relocated out of the Sinai and committing if the oil from the, that Israel was getting out of the Sinai wasn't delivered, provided, or supplied by the Egyptians, we would make up for it. These were big issues uh, for Begin. In the case of Rabin, we had a set of understandings on what would happen if there was a deal, including uh, security assistance, new generation of aircraft, cutting edge defense systems and the like. In the case of Sharon, he got the Bush letter, which he considered to be, as I said, one of the most important, he considered it the equivalent of like the Balfour Declaration in terms of a commitment from the United States. The U.S. does have a role to play in this. What can the U.S. do? What are the kind of things that the U.S. could do now that could make it easier for an Israeli leadership to take the steps I described before, meaning stop building outside the blocks, don't build in the Arab neighborhoods of East Jerusalem, declare that the area to the east of the, the barrier will not have Israeli security, uh, giving Palestinians access to basically to Area C, uh, giving financial incentives to give to have those outside the, the blocks move back in. There's a number of things that we could do. If Israel were to take those kinds of steps, the administration should, in my mind, make the following kinds of promises. First, Israel doesn't have to take any other initiatives on peace until, in fact, they see something from the Palestinians and the Arabs. If it remains this way for a long time, so be it. Israel will have taken a move that demonstrates its commitment to a two-state outcome, and it can't produce two states on its own. So we make that commitment to the Israelis. Make a second commitment that we will oppose any resolution against Israel in the Security Council. A third commitment. Go to the Europeans and say, all right, Israel is making, before the Israelis do this, say, here's what Israel is prepared to do. Now, we're going to push them to take these steps. It'll make it a lot easier for us to get them to do this if you will commit to supporting it publicly if you will publicly call on the Arabs to normalize, take steps towards normalization with Israel, if you will make it clear that the Palestinians have to take responsive steps or comparable or parallel steps. I mean, to give you a good example of what the Palestinians could do, they could stop what is known as pay for slay. Anybody know what that means? It's, uh, they take, they give preferential treatment both in terms of priority of getting assistance from their welfare department and uh, much higher stipends to the families of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails who are responsible for carrying out acts of terror against Israel. That's why it stands, that's why it, it amounts to pay for slave. They could stop that. Uh, they could acknowledge that there is a historic connection of the Jewish people to the land. They could do those two things. It should be insisted upon by us and the Europeans. And if they don't do it, the Europeans should be prepared to criticize the Palestinians in public, something they don't do. We could get with the Europeans at the same time to be prepared to fight the delegitimization movement. Especially in the, again, in the, in the aftermath where Israel is taking steps 
that make it clear unmistakably that it's doing its part for a two-state outcome, that should be the case. These are examples of what we could be doing that would make it, that would make it politically more saleable. I want to conclude with kind of the following thought. Leave aside what the U.S. government can do. You know, I started by asking the question, why, is there a, why isn't there a debate in Israel? And I gave you the reasons for it. But I think now especially, one of the things that, whether it's the administration or it's members of Congress, or it's Jewish delegations that go to Israel. There should be questions to Israeli decision makers about what are you doing to prevent Israel from becoming a binational state. By the way, the Prime Minister of Israel says Israel won't become a binational state. So it's legitimate to ask, okay, what are you doing so that won't be the outcome? It's legitimate also to say to Israeli officials or Knesset members uh, or media people, you know, if the Palestinians increasingly adopt a mantra of one person, one vote, what do you think the effect in the United States is going to be? You think over time that we'll stay exactly where we are? You think over time this won't have an impact? You're already seeing within the Democratic Party what is an increasing sign of estrangement from Israel. You think that won't accelerate? If this becomes a mantra for the Palestinians and the response is basically, in effect, to deny it, there is a way to head this off. But one of the ways to make sure this issue gets joined is to begin, for those in the US government and those outside, to begin to ask these kinds of questions. What I'm suggesting is not a criticism. It's an observation. Israel still has to make these decisions. Nobody in this country can make it for them. And you can understand, as I said, why the context makes it difficult. But if you stay where you are because the context is difficult, there will be a tipping point, and by the time you wake up and realize what's happened, it's gonna to be too late. Thank you very much.